Good morning to you all on this seventh Lord's Day since we've been unable to gather in person. As the world shakes in chaos and anxiety around us, my prayer for us this morning is that we might be reminded of the firm foundation of the gospel and the immovable throne of Christ. Over centuries of plagues, natural disasters, wars, and martyrdom, many points at which man declared the current events must mean the end of days, even in the midst of those days, Christ has been enthroned in righteousness and justice, and he has been unmoved. And it's the same today. Let's take a moment of silence to remind ourselves that our trust is in him and him alone. I hope that as we engage in the study of the word together, that you're able to put aside anything from the week that might be troubling you, and you might focus on the stability of Christ. This morning, we will begin with a reading from Psalm 8, read by Dallas Cole, and a reading from John 13, verses 12 through 20, read by Whitney Cole. As you listen, focus on the characterization of Christ's kingdom. And then one of our elders, Patrick Schneider, will lead us in a pastoral prayer. May the Lord grant us wise understanding and application as we listen to his word. A reading from the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 12 through 20. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we find ourselves in a world that has strayed from you, a world that follows many false gods, a world filled with selfish pursuit. We have all participated in this world system of self, and if left to ourselves and our selfishness, we surely will destroy who we were created to be. Praise to you, Lord, for you have not forsaken us. You have proclaimed your kingdom is here. It is a kingdom unlike any we have seen. It is built on the sacrifice of your son, Jesus the Christ. 
It is a kingdom that exemplifies humility and love. It is a kingdom that lifts up the weak and vulnerable. It is a kingdom that pursues righteousness and justice. And in this kingdom, none of us have right to claim our own power or authority. But we submit ourselves to your rightful rule as our king. And as we hear your word, may we humble ourselves and walk in submission to you. As your disciples, we are part of this kingdom and submit to live in humility and to love in sincerity. Help us as we are part of your kingdom, yet still in this broken world. Help us to have empathy with those around us, especially those that have opposing viewpoints with us. Please continue your work of sanctification in our lives. May we be empowered by your gospel and your authority to live in your kingdom in the here and now, though we are surrounded by many that are against you. May we align our minds and hearts with you, our holy Lord. May we decrease as you increase. To you be all the glory. Amen. Grace and peace to you this morning or afternoon or evening, whenever you're able to get a moment to spend time and worship with us. We're glad to have you and we're thankful that you can join us by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Have you been surprised lately at how quickly things are changing? It seems as though constant adjustments and flexibility are now the norm. Whether speaking of countries or states, counties, cities, or individuals, new information means adjustment. And this, I believe, is the cause of anxiety that many are feeling. As humans, we like to have a plan and know where we are going. We grasp at the wind, trying to hold on to a tangible timeline and path. Security is something we crave. And yet, no one seems to know what the answer is. But even then, I must admit that I have been a bit mystified by how quickly mankind turns on itself, even under these circumstances. Always looking for someone to blame, someone to shove aside so that we might gain our own security. Not even a few weeks ago, throughout major metropolitan areas, entire neighborhoods were applauding together to thank healthcare workers for their sacrifice. This week, we awoke to see images and videos of people protesting in those same hospitals and outside those same healthcare facilities. And then we saw people counter-protesting. In essence, people were yelling at healthcare workers for the loss of jobs and breakdown in our economy from heroes to zeros within a week. Now, please hear me before you turn this off, thinking I'm making any political statement whatsoever. As I'll note later on, I can empathize with everyone involved. I obviously can empathize with the healthcare workers that are laying their lives on the line to save complete strangers. But at the end of the day, I can also empathize, maybe not agree with or fully understand, but empathize with those who want to get life going again. This season of COVID-19 has brought unseen hardship on so many. And for that, we must grant a certain amount of grace and empathy towards literally everyone, even if they seem like their opinion is not understandable to us. There's nowhere in this world that is escaping from the effects of this virus. And at the same time, we need to recognize the brokenness and sinfulness that is bubbling up in our world. As I noted in one of my first teachings during the COVID-19 restrictions, crisis brings out what is already within each of us, and it's doing just that for humanity as a whole. The inherent sinfulness of mankind is showing in how we are beginning to treat one another. In fact, it was showing in the early days as well, but it's just become more pronounced. Back then, it was people clamoring over one another to get a roll of toilet paper. Today, it's people protesting against the very healthcare workers that are saving lives. The high view of self and personal rights is overcoming care and love for one another. The other day, I was out running a necessary errand for the operations of the church, and I was at the post office. 
As I entered, I made sure to keep my social distance from the handful of other people that were coming or going. But as I walked by, I noticed that as I tried to smile and acknowledge them as I usually do anyone I walk by, there was not a reciprocation. There was something different on all of their faces, an avoidance and an anxiety, a fear that I am noticing more and more on people's faces when I have to go out in public. It's almost as if everyone has become a hidden enemy. This general paranoia and fear towards one another is reaching epidemic proportions in and of itself. Statistics regarding distrust of government, distrust of healthcare, distrust of businesses is at an all-time high in many categories. And I would hazard a guess that many, believing or not, have a general distrust of God in the midst of this. Things seem completely upside down and inside out. Dear brothers and sisters, this is why I am so thankful for the truth of God's word and for the gospel. You see, in the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that then follows as a result of it, the world gets turned right side up. Now, you may have heard this phrase, the upside down kingdom, in relation to the kingdom of God. It became popular in the late 70s into the 80s and 90s. And while I understand its use and point, I want to challenge one thing. Aren't we in the upside down kingdom right now? Aren't we wearing life and the reflection of God in a way that is inside out and upside down? In other words, in a way not intended? What Christ did through the gospel and what comes out of that gospel is a turning of all things, including our relationship to God and one another, so that it is right side up. It is how it was originally intended, so that it is restored and corrected. And so the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its gracious empowerment in the midst of obedience as kingdom citizens is so pertinent and relevant to us right now. It's exactly in the midst of this current environment of paranoia and anxiety that living as disciples can show such a stark difference between the upside-down kingdom of darkness we confront in the world and the right-side-up kingdom of God. Our text this morning is going to speak to us exactly about that, the fact that the gospel leads to the right-side-up kingdom. That's the title of today's teaching. If you are taking notes and want to write it down, the gospel leads to the right-side-up kingdom. It leads to the correction of things, in other words. Let's take a look at our text for today, beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, and continuing through verse 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. We find ourselves again in the midst of Jesus' teaching of discipleship. Mark is making clear in this short section what it is that Jesus declares to be a disciple. Specifically, what it is, as he noted back in chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, to lose your life, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. What it is to be a disciple. 
And so the first thing that we see in our text today is that the gospel of Jesus is the foundation from which the kingdom of God is built. That's our first major point you can take down if you're taking notes. The gospel of Jesus is the foundation from which the kingdom of God is built. Three times in the section from 831 until 1052, Jesus clearly and definitively states to his disciples that he would suffer, die, and resurrect. In essence, Jesus speaks the bullet points of the same gospel truth that Paul would later use in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read that to you. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. First Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Paul said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now notice its similarity to what Jesus indicated in Mark 8.31. Back in Mark 8.31, we saw the first time that Jesus discussed his death and resurrection. It says in Mark 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. And look again at our reading today in Mark 9.31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This, dear brothers and sisters, is the gospel. Capital T, the capital G, Gospel. When you apply to become a member at Mission Fellowship, this is what we are discerning in the midst of the conversation we will have with you as to whether or not you know the Gospel. In his incarnate form, Jesus was handed over by God the Father to mankind so that he would die at our hands due to our sin. That in that death, he would take our place as a sacrificial offering, taking on our sin as the scapegoat of the Old Testament in Levitical law did for Israel. And that after that suffering and death upon the cross, in which he received the wrath of God upon sin, he would rise three days later, proving that his offering was accepted and that he had received dominion and authority from the Father. Now, those of you who've heard me teach for years know that I want us to also recognize the enthronement of Christ, as well as the establishment of his kingdom among the saints by pouring his Holy Spirit out as part of the overall narrative and outcome of the gospel. The gospel is his death and resurrection. What was accomplished by that gospel was his enthronement and the adoption of sons and daughters, you and me, into his kingdom. Now, the reason that I combine these two, that I include the good news of the kingdom of God with the good news of justification by Jesus' substitutionary sacrificial work, is because this is what Mark infers is Jesus' meaning in his verbiage of 931. Again, he says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Go back with me for a moment to Daniel chapter 7. I know we've been there before, multiple times in Mark, and we will be there again before we are done. But this is Jesus' most used title for himself. And as we have noted before, Jesus gets this idea of the Son of Man from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. You can turn there with me, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. This is the scene in the night visions that Daniel was given. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
This son of man is given dominion in the midst of what verse 12 calls the beasts or false kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus, this one singular man, becomes the final Adam, restoring what the first Adam should have been obedient in to hold dominion over the created world as God's sub-regent or sub-king. Remember that this was the command for Adam, the one whose name means mankind. Let me read to you from Genesis 1.28 in that original command. It says that God blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Mark 9 is stating that Jesus was given over by the Father God, as the Son of Man, into the hands of mankind, to suffer and die, so that he might resurrect to the position of ultimate dominion in Daniel 7. And by his work of death and resurrection, Jesus was initiating a new kingdom into which he could purchase and ransom men and women who would be his citizens, his disciples, and his purified ones by his blood. This is what is referred to later in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, It says, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The Bible is clear that without the atoning and justifying work of Jesus in suffering and death, there is no resurrection to kingdom enthronement. Likewise, if we simply hold on to justification as if it is the finality of all that the Bible teaches, we miss the ultimate point of glorification of Christ above all in his position as king over the kingdom of God. This is why it saddens me that within the Protestant tradition, there are brothers and sisters that lean to one side or the other of what I've just described, and they do so sometimes in vitriolic debate. Brothers and sisters, we must see both. We must recognize the bedrock of the substitutionary death of Christ and rejoice in the kingdom that it accomplished that is both here in the true church of God active in the world and not yet fully present in overcoming the chaotic man-made chaos and sin. In Mark 9.31, Jesus is clear that the glorification of the Messiah or the coming of the messianic kingdom reign would not occur without first going through the suffering and death that he was about to endure. And when he is killed or murdered, after that, then three days later, he would rise. Now, this is where we get into the idea of upside down versus right side up. This, what Jesus had to endure, is upside down in our earthly, human, fleshly eyes and minds. How on earth does one get lifted up or glorified from abasing themselves, from humbling themselves? This is not the way it works, our human fleshly minds cry out. This is upside down, we might say. So I can see where the phrase gets its meaning, and I do love it for that reason. But at the same time, don't you see that this is actually making things right, putting them right side up? In the work of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, we see the heart of the triune God, a heart of humility, a heart of sacrificing self so that others might be lifted out of their oppression. It makes very little sense in our eyes that God, the most powerful being in eternity, would lower himself to be given into the hands of men, the creation, that we might be saved. What are we that he should do this? This is what the psalmist was trying to declare in Psalm 8 about the character of Father God that was our earlier reading this morning. He said, When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Dear brothers and sisters, even at our most glorified, precursed existent state, We were nothing but molded clay that had been given the breath of God so that we might reflect his greatness. In creation, God condescended to walk with his creation in the cool of the day, 
God, in a sense, humbled himself to provide for our needs. He did not need us, and yet by his grace, he created us and gave us life. In the life, ministry, and death of Jesus, God again condescended, humbled himself to come down into our existence so that we might know him and he might know our suffering. In so doing, he showed us his true nature and heart. He's both the most majestic and glorified and yet the most humble of all beings. In Jesus, God gave his life for you and I that we might be brought to him in reconciled relationship. He gave his life for the very mankind that betrayed and murdered him. The killing of Jesus was the apex of our sin, the highest point of us crying out that we wanted no authority over us. We wanted our authority, our king, to be crucified. When it comes to the establishment of his throne and the kingdom reign that proceeds from it, there is no other way for it to have been established but through the humility of the cross. Humility, righteousness, and justice is the bedrock upon which the throne of God and his rule within his kingdom is established. The gospel of Jesus, you see, is the foundation from which the kingdom of God is built. And yet, at this point in their journey with Jesus, the disciples still do not understand. And Mark 9.32 says that they are afraid to even ask him what it means for him to die and resurrect. But you and I, dear listener, must have great grace towards these disciples because I fear that some of us still may not understand fully either as we walk in our journey with Christ. Humility might be something that some of us, myself included, still need to grasp to a greater degree. And so we see our next and second point in our text today. You can write this down if you're taking notes. The false gospel is anything in which glory comes before humility. Again, the false gospel is anything in which glory comes before humility. In the old classic allegory that some of you might be familiar with called Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, the author, leads the main character named Christian on a path called the straight and narrow along the wall of salvation. He had come through the wicket gate, but along the wall, uh, Christian encounters two new characters that had climbed over the wall instead of coming through the provided gate that is a picture of Jesus and his offering on the cross and resurrection. One of these two men that came over the wall, formalist, is attempting to jump the wall of salvation through his religious formality. The other, hypocrisy, is doing so by claiming with his mouth what is not backed by his action. In this beautifully symbolic allegory, Bunyan is stating that many are trying to find salvation through means other than what Christ provided. In so doing, they are not actually gaining salvation, merely fooling themselves into a false salvation. We see a similar error in the disciples in our text today. There's an almost deafening sarcasm in Mark's organization of these texts as he finishes the small text in verses 30 through 32 with the phrase, they did not understand, and then illustrates with bold color how obvious this is in verses 33 through 37. The disciples have completely missed what we have just spelled out that the kingdom of God is built on the humility of the Messiah, and from that, glory is given. But notice that they are not doing anything abnormal compared to most of humanity, in fact, all of humanity. No, they're doing what mankind has done for ages, to view the path of glory through power, not humility. Now, this was very normal in Judaism. In the days of Christ, Judaism was consumed with hierarchy, rank, genealogy, and power. And this is why Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.4 to rebuke those that focus on endless genealogies. Hereditary title in connection to ancestral power, such as Moses or Elijah, was a huge focus of the religious groups in Judaism. But it wasn't just in Judaism. Just look at our culture in the West, and specifically in the United States. We glory in the strongest, fastest, smartest, and most charismatic. Political power and religion are infamously tied at the hip. Much of what I would classify as false evangelicalism is obsessed with being close to power, 
so much so that they will ignore blatant hypocrisy in candidates on both sides of the aisle to declare their candidate to be of their religious ilk. We do the same thing with athletes. They can live whatever life outside of the athletic field that they want, but if they point at the sky after a touchdown, many inherently believe they should become a new spiritual spokesperson. We have an incessant need to make people of power out to be like us so we can erroneously lift ourselves up along with them. This current time with coronavirus is making me unbelievably insane as the only pastors that are getting any airtime or the only leaders of anything to do with Christ that are getting any movement in the news are those that are coming across as arrogant, uncaring, and oppressive, not humble as Christ was, not serving as Christ did. We see abusive power and authority all over our society and the church is not immune We have the capability, even within our small local church, to confuse service with power, to confuse responsibility of care with power. So it's not very far that the disciples have to travel to get to the place where they are wondering who will be the highest authority and the greatest power within the messianic kingdom they felt sure Jesus would shortly establish. But Jesus, hearing that this was the case, immediately sits them down to give them course correction, because if this is not corrected then they truly will have no part with him. And Jesus tells them that the right side up view of the kingdom of God is that it is those that will humble themselves that will actually be glorified. Those that will be last of all and servant of all, those will be the ones that will be glorified and be first of all. In other words, Jesus is telling those of us that desire to be his disciples that the power structure of the world is anathema to God. The way this world works with power, control, and authority and oppression is not the way his kingdom works. What the disciples would come to find out through the cross was that Jesus would be lifted up, enthroned, and glorified in the midst of humiliation. Any sense of discipleship that brings with it a sense of entitlement is the polar opposite of that which Christ gives. To worship Jesus is indeed to worship a king, but to follow that king into the divine majesty is to lower yourself as he lowered himself. Nowhere is this more clearly spelled out than in John 13, our second reading from today. Would you turn there with me to John 13, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put out in his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. 
But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The God that created all things and spans the universe with his presence humbled himself into the form of his son, Jesus so that he could wash the feet of those who studied below him. A position and task reserved in most households for only the lowliest servants, and yet the master was performing it for the followers. And he didn't stop there. That night, Jesus would be arrested for crimes he did not commit, handed over to an unjust trial, condemned in complete innocence, and then handed over to Roman soldiers to be beaten, humiliated as they whipped him, crowned him with thorns, and mocked him as king of the Jews. All the while, those Roman soldiers unknowingly were paving the path to glory and dominion for the Son of Man. There on that cross, Jesus was made lower, more humble than even the lowest of society. The Bible says that Jesus became the sacrifice of sin for you and I. He took on your burden of sin and mine and bore it on the cross paying the price of our guilt and shame so that you and I might be one with our creator. Jesus became a condemned criminal and was willingly cast aside so that might happen. Jesus had to endure humiliation and suffering at the hands of the upside-down mentality of this world so that he could be positioned right-side up in glory as the proper king of heaven. Dear listener, have you agreed with God's word that this is what Jesus did for you? Have you accepted this truth and confessed to God that Jesus bore your sin on that cross? If you haven't, then today is the day to confess this truth, to repent from your sins and turn from all that you've embraced. Turn instead to God and his holiness and grace so that you might one day see resurrection to eternal life. And you can do it right in your home. Simply cry out to God. He's waiting to hear you and follow him as part of a Bible-believing church. Well, you'll notice that the last line of the section in John 13 is the same as in Mark 9.37. To make his point to the disciples in Mark 9, Jesus uses an object lesson, a living parable of a child. Children in those days were seen as the lowest of society, unproductive, useless consumers, to be seen and not heard, a nuisance. And yet Jesus said that in his kingdom, to serve or receive one of such lowly status is to serve Christ himself. To follow Christ is to engage in that process of lowering oneself to care for the other, even if it is below you or annoying to you. Honestly, it is a truth that most in this world will find offensive. To become glorified, one must first become the humble servant of all. Any supposed gospel or religious teaching that is contrary to that is nothing more than a false gospel masquerading as the truth. The false gospel is anything in which glory comes before humility. And this is why we can so quickly identify false gospels. A false gospel will tell you that the main point of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection was so you can get wealthy and have a life of success and power. A false gospel says that if you are more spiritual than your brother or sister in Christ or have a spiritual gift that they do not, then you should be above them in spiritual rank. A false gospel says that you can earn your way to salvation by showing your spiritual prowess and purity, being the spiritually best. A false gospel drives us to want a title or a position of power in the church rather than realizing that to hold a title or position of leadership in the church is to offer yourself as a servant of all, leading and giving your time, talent, and treasure, willing to bear humiliation and mischaracterization as you lead the body. And this is the heart behind Peter's charge to the church in the first letter that bears his name. He eventually learned this lesson from Christ and wanted to pass it on to the church. And notice in the section we're about to read in 1 Peter 4 that he connects suffering, humility, glorification, all in the way that Jesus, his master, did in Mark 9. Why don't you turn with me there to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, 
beginning in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice to be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, brothers and sisters, the longer I walk with Christ, the more it becomes apparent to me that the most obvious mark of a true Christian is that of humility. Humility in listening. Humility in empathy. Humility in serving. Humility in seeking reconciliation. Humility in vulnerability. In our world of social media and lifting up our own opinion, we are blessed that those who want to walk in humility can easily set themselves apart by humbling themselves, by recognizing that they are the ones that are supposed to be serving others, listening to others, empathizing with others, seeking reconciliation, being vulnerable. Dear Saint, in Christ's kingdom, it is the last, the servant, the humbled, that shall be glorified. Why? Because that was the path of our King, Savior, and Master. And those that are perfectly trained will be just like their Master. The false gospel is anything in which glory comes before humility. Now, as if to add insult to injury, Mark gives us one more story that illustrates the disciples' complete misapprehension of the kingdom. The key to understanding this vignette is its placement and context. I have experienced people using this next section of Mark to say that anyone that uses the name of Jesus must be a Christian and that theology is irrelevant, but that cannot be the case based on a myriad of other texts. For example, let's take a look really quickly at Jesus's statement in Matthew 1230 and compare it to the one in Mark. In Matthew 12.30, Jesus says this. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now that's almost directly opposite of what Jesus said here. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. And so there's even debate in commentary circles about whether one of these two is incorrect. So this is not a proof text in this section of Mark for us to become lax in our protection of the gospel or to abolish the pale of orthodoxy as to what makes up orthodox Christian belief. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, he did that in my name and therefore he's okay. That's not the point of this text. 
Christ teaches very much that there is an inside and outside to Christianity. And you can even look at statements like Mark 4.11, where he's speaking to the fact that those outside the kingdom are not going to understand his teachings and his parables. So to figure out what we should know about this text, we need to look at the context combined with one small word within the actual text itself. The context is that the disciples are lifting themselves up in a position of authority that they should not be. They're not humbling themselves. And the word that we need to look at is the word us at the end of verse 38. If they had said, Jesus, we stopped him because he was not following you, this would be a whole different text with a whole different response of Christ and a different meaning. But the disciples had set themselves up to be the sole means by which people are admitted to the kingdom. They said they were not following us. Now this was interesting because it follows right after a circumstance where they themselves were not able to exercise demons. And so could it be that just reading along in the story, this was trying to portray the fact that they had a little bit of wounded ego, a little bit of arrogance here, and the fact that these other people who were exercising demons in Jesus's name were not submitting to them. You see, it's picturing them in complete arrogance rather than humility. This was a matter of arrogance and power. And this is part of why we have the church polity we do. While fighting very strongly for orthodox theology, we recognize the autonomy of other local churches to be the overseers of their local congregations and the souls within them. Within our own local church, we look to the elders and the full number of the congregation to affirm membership within the body of Christ. We do have an inside and an outside, but we welcome anyone to partake in our body so that they might know the love of the membership and the congregation so that they might be brought further into covenantal membership within the body of Christ. And everyone who seeks to be affirmed as a member for the rest of us to stand up and say, yes, we agree that this person is a believer and that the world should look at them for an example of what a disciple is. Anyone who wants to be affirmed in that manner has to answer the four basic questions of knowledge of the gospel, if they've been baptized or not, testimony of salvation, and give evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. These are the basic understandings of what a disciple will have if they're walking with Christ. But to lift ourselves up beyond stewards of the local body of Christ, to a place of thinking we have the only truth or the best way of doing things, that is to lift ourselves up in arrogance. And that's why I'm so thankful for our body, for our congregation, and for those sister churches that we've been able to reach out to, to gain help and knowledge and understanding of what it is to walk as a local body of Christ. But to do so differently, to lift ourselves up, that's the false gospel. Because the false gospel is anything in which glory comes before humility. And these two vignettes, these two stories show the disciples doing that. And so Christ finishes our section today with a simple statement that sums up his view of true glorification and high standing within his kingdom, that of service of the brethren. Here we see what it is to adjust to the right side up kingdom. And that's the third and final point this morning. Disciples adjust their thinking to be part of the right side up kingdom. Disciples adjust their thinking to be part of the right side up kingdom. You see, in this one line of Mark, Jesus sums up and caps what he said earlier. Let's take a look at it again. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, many commentators believe that this was added in here. It wasn't part of the discourse that was happening, but that it was added in because it was to be connected and understood within the context of the rest of it. What Jesus is saying is it is those that serve one another within the kingdom of God that will be given great reward. It is the last that will be first, the servant of all that will be powerful. And this is the way that God created us to be, not striving for power or control or being right or winning, but submitting ourselves to one another in love, lowering ourselves. Just as Christ did himself as part of the gospel, 
and just as he empowered us to do through the pouring out of his spirit. And this is what Jesus demonstrated in John 13 to the disciples as he washed their feet. But go back there one more time to John 13 and look at one more section with me. Look at John 13, verse 31. John 13, verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Remember the Son of Man from Daniel. Jesus is saying that the cross, the suffering and humiliation, that was the route to him being given the kingdom by the Ancient of Days. And he concludes with the fact that those of us who are his, those of us who are Christ's, as he said in Mark, are those who love one another within his new community of saints who will humble ourselves in the way we treat one another. It is by our love for one another that the world will know that we are Christ's. And the way we know we are doing that is not in pointing out that someone else in the body needs to do that, but by holding ourselves individually accountable from within by asking ourselves the question, am I humbling myself before my brothers and sisters? Am I serving them before I ask anything of them? The Apostle John used this same idea in one of his letters. In 1 John 4.20, he writes this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is why, brothers and sisters, we as the elders push you so heavily to reconcile with one another within the body when conflict occurs, within your marriages, within your friendships, and within the congregation at large. To hold a grudge, to wall off from someone else, to refuse reconciliation when the other person desires it, is to break the core commandment of Christ. Our love for God is shown in our love for one another as we serve one another. So how do we operate in this right-side-up kingdom in the midst of a world that has gone upside down? How do we do this when we're stuck in our homes? Well, first, we need to humble ourselves. It's the first thing you can write down as application. We need to humble ourselves. Each of us needs to ask the question of whether those around us consider us to be humble. And maybe you should even ask those who know you best. Are you approachable? Do you listen? Are you willing to admit when you are wrong? How do you take humiliation or being humbled by someone else? If the answer to these questions is negative, maybe it's time for us to ask the Lord to grant us humility and wisdom as to how best to lower ourselves. Maybe it is time for us to quietly begin serving. As you're stuck in your homes, ask yourselves, how are you serving those around you, your spouses, your roommates, your families, your children, your neighbors? Now is a wonderful time to be humbled, to be servant of all. As you go out into the workforce or serve customers, are you humbling yourself before them? Second, we need to love one another. Notice Jesus' wording in Mark 9.41. The service is towards those who are Christ's. While Jesus also teaches us to love our neighbors and those outside the kingdom of God, recognize that Jesus is not a proponent here of the worldly view often categorized as quote-unquote random acts of kindness. There are plenty of people rebellious to the lordship of Christ that are kind people. But it is love toward one another within the new covenant community that shows the world who we are and who we submit to. You see, it's easy to be kind to a stranger. It is very hard to be kind to a brother or sister that you are locked in covenant commitment to that you are in conflict with. 
but it's our love one for another in the midst of those situations that declares that we are Jesus's followers because we have to humble ourselves in order to get over those things. And then as we have a chance to serve others outside the body, we do. Paul puts this so well in his letter to the church at Galatia in Galatians 6.10. It says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I have been so blessed to watch and hear about all of you reaching out to one another, checking in on each other, caring for one another as you can. Well done, church. Take this time to grow in this way of serving. Pick up the phone, call one another, and check in on each other. Well, third, not only do we need to humble ourselves and love one another, but third, we need to empathize with those that are outside the kingdom. I've found over the years that humility breeds empathy, and empathy breeds humility. And in fact, we need to empathize with everyone, those inside and outside the kingdom. You see, empathy is the simple act of laying down your own opinions and beliefs to simply listen to the position of the other person. And right now, in the midst of all the fear, anger, paranoia, and anxiety, the heart stance for us to have as believers is to humble ourselves. The only solution we have is Jesus, his eternal gospel, and the future hope of resurrection that it provides. No one, not the political leaders, not the business or healthcare leaders, have answers. They only have guesses. And so we should not, as Christians, take part in the vitriolic debating that is going on in our world. Brothers and sisters, can I beg you to stay out of the politics, to stay out of the divisiveness that is going on online. We need to empathize with those all over the world, those scared to go to work in healthcare and as first responders and grocery workers and Amazon employees. We need to empathize with those unemployed, wanting to go back to work, scared for their financial futures. We need to empathize with the elderly, with the young, with the Republicans, with the Democrats, with the independents. The simple fact is that no one is profiting from this current situation. Everyone is hurting. And if they are not hurting now, they will at some point. And so we, as disciples of Jesus, can humble ourselves enough to empathize with those around us. Empathy is not agreement. It is understanding and listening. Let's be a humble witness in the midst of the chaos of the world that points people to the truth of Christ's right-side-up kingdom. As disciples of a Lord and Master who made the way to salvation possible through suffering, humiliation, and death, we must recognize that God's kingdom and those obedient to it will be founded on humility and love for the other. If we can implement this in our lives, we will be enacting the truth that the gospel leads to the right-side-up kingdom of God. And as we accept the gospel for our own salvation and justification, and play out the gospel in our own lives as those following Jesus, we will show people the kingdom that is restored and beautiful and miraculous that Jesus desires for the world to see. May we have ears to hear what the Lord is saying to us. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your wisdom. It is deep and rich, and we could search it for our whole lives and never scratch the surface of it. Your wisdom is woven into reality, and it calls us to a life of submission to you, a life of dependence on you a life of repentance from our old ways of living. Jesus, in your righteous life of submission and dependence on the Father, you give us the example we should follow. A life filled with putting others ahead of ourselves. A life filled with compassion and empathy. If you, the unique Son of God, serves others, then we, your humble servants, will serve others. Strip away any pride or that is an idol in our life. Use your word and spirit today to open our eyes to any pride or prideful aspirations that keep us from a single-minded allegiance to you. Let the mind of Christ rule in us. Keep finishing the work you have begun in us so we can bear your image and your name well. And when we get weary or discouraged at the weakness of our flesh, remind us of your faithful mercy. 
Father, remind us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Reset the way we think about ourselves, that we would be humble and know the great love you have for us. Reset the way we think about relationships, that we would seek to build up everyone around us rather than use them to build ourselves up. Reset the way we think about our time, our talents, and our treasure. These are yours, given to us by you to be used for your purposes and your kingdom, not our own. From you and through you and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever. Amen.